I'm going to be reading this morning from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, so that you are, see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the birth, beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you um, want us to walk in the truth, to know you, and to um, be clear-headed, clear-minded, God, in this dark world. And I pray as we look at your word, God, that we would have just the insight and understanding that you want for us, and that we would um, embrace by faith all that you've said, and that your good purposes, God, would be accomplished in us as we look at your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we... Um, sent our students off this morning, the His Hill students, to Nacogdoches. They have a week mission trip there where they'll be repairing three homes. And so just about all the staff are gone and all the students, and they'll be coming back in, um, I think it's Friday next week. So you can pray for them while they're on their trip. We used to um, send our students to Mexico at this time of year. And the reason we started that, I was the director and... and um, and year after year, at the beginning of the school year, we just would seem like we were getting so many complaints about the facilities, the food, and I'm thinking, they need to go to Mexico. <laughs> and so uh, we would load them all up, and uh, they would come back so grateful. Uh, they loved the food, they loved the facilities. Um, so there was, there's a, sometimes it's a good thing to torture other people and... Um, <laughs> Which brings me to our text. Um, I'm halfway kidding here. Um, these two chapters here, Matthew 24 and 25, are called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is speaking to his disciples from the Mount of Olives. And the entire two chapters, the whole discourse, is about things that are coming. And in particular, about what we call the Great Tribulation. 
the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy where he prophesied that there would be 70 weeks and those weeks being the times of the Gentiles and that last week, that 70th week or seven years would, um, would be a time of great distress, a time when God is pouring out his judgment upon the earth and not a happy time. Now, some of this is a point now, the topic here theologically is called eschatology, the doctrine of end times or last things. And I understand very well that evangelicals are all over the place when it comes to eschatology. So this does not put you in the camp of being a heretic or not. You can believe soundly um, on all the major points of, of what we should believe and yet still have some, some um, confusion or, or disagreement um, with other Christians and this does not make you a heretic if you were to take a position other than what I am going to espouse for sure. Um, it is my conviction that we will not as Christians as the body of Christ, the church, go through that seven-year tribulation. So then the question is raised, well, then why does Jesus spend so much time talking about it if we're not even going to go through it? And I believe he wants those who will go through it to understand what's going on because they will still have Bibles, and these passages will be a great encouragement to them to persevere to the end of that time. The... the um, again, as I've said, theologians are all over the place with this topic of eschatology. Smart people, scholars, and they don't agree with each other. For an example, um, even in the outline of this chapter, um, there are those who would, and, the, and again, I'm going to list just three different individuals here who would all say that we don't go through the tribulation. But one, um, Walvard, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a long time and is regarded by all as an expert in eschatology, he would say that verses 4 through 14 are right now, the inter-advent age, the time between when Christ ascended to when Christ will return to the earth. And so he says verses 4 through 14 pertain to today. And then you've got Arnold Frutenbaum, who is also regarded as an expert in eschatology and Jewish believer, lives in San Antonio. And Arnold takes the position that only verses 4 through 8 deal with today. And after verse 8, at beginning at verse 9, the tribulation is being described. And then you have others like um, Dr. Tommy Ice, who would say no, um, verses 4 through 14 are dealing with the first half of the tribulation, and verse 15 and on is dealing with the second half of the tribulation. So these are three scholars who don't agree with each other, but they all agree that we are not going to go through the tribulation. They just don't agree with what Jesus is saying here. Is he describing now, or is he describing the first half of the tribulation, and where does the tribulation begin? So, I'm a simple guy, and I read all these guys that are a lot smarter than me, and I'm tempted just to close up the books and go, <laughs> why worry about it? These guys can't get it straight, 
I'm not going to get it straight. In fact, I have a friend who a lot smarter than I am, and he says, you know, when it comes to eschatology, I just figure it's not worth thinking about. And <laughs> it says it's just, it, he says it's just too complicated. Well, it is complicated. I, I readily admit that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. Um, there are a lot of things that are complicated, and I'm thankful for people who who will think on those things and sort through them and help those of us that are more simple-minded. But here's where I fall. It's the simplest explanation for why I do not believe Christians will go through the tribulation. Very simply, there is not a single tribulation passage in the Bible that mentions the church. Let me say that again. <laughs> there are a lot of tribulation passages in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Not a single one of them ever mentions the church. Now that's a pretty good sign to me that the church is not in the tribulation. So you might say, well, that's an argument from silence. And I would respond, no. If you're saying the church goes through the tribulation, that is an argument from silence because the church is never mentioned in the tribulation. If I um, were accused of robbing a convenience store, I've never been tempted, so don't worry, um, and, and I had to defend myself, I would simply say, show me the evidence. Prove that I was there. Is there videotape of me being there? No. Ping my cell phone. Is there indication that my cell phone was at that location? No. Are there any witnesses that I was at that location? No. Then I would say, I wasn't there. And so when there is no tribulation passage that mentions the church, it is to read your theology into those passages to say the church is there. It just isn't there. Now, saints are mentioned, but saints are also mentioned in the book of Daniel as well as other places in the Old Testament. And when Daniel was prophesying of the future things and speaking of saints, he was referring to believing Jews. I think that's the same thing that Jesus is doing in these passages, 24 and 25, because as we'll see, he's talking to Israel, to believing Jews in particular, his disciples that are standing around him. And so he will make reference to saints, but he never makes reference to the church. Never. So, that's where we are going to start with this. That's my long introduction. And so let's look at the, at the text. And Jesus came out from the temple, and he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Because they were impressive. And you couldn't be a good Jew and not be a little bit gloating over the wonderful buildings that had been constructed. This construction started a little earlier than 20 B.C. And so it's been going on for over 50 years at this time in 33 A.D. And the construction is going to still continue for another 30 years and won't be finished until 64 A.D. And they, it was a marvelous achievement that had been done. People wanted to come and just look at these buildings because they were so, so impressive. And so it's understandable 
that these disciples were impressed as well. But Jesus is going, <laughs> it's just rocks on top of rocks. He's not that. Now, that's very significant because, again, it's the temple, which was viewed as the religious center of the world for the Jewish people. It was viewed as the dwelling place of God. But God, Jesus just does not put the same emphasis on this building as others do. And if you want even a more um, uh, insight into that, go over to Acts chapter 7. And when Stephen is on trial, he's going to spend his long defense sermon talking about how unimportant the temple is. That it's about the presence of God, it's about the person of God, and it's not about a building. And that's what Stephen's point is going to be, and it's going to cost him his life. They're going to be so angry at him that they're going to drag him out and stone him on the spot. And so Jesus, when he hears them talking about what a wonderful place this is, verse 2, he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. That will happen in 70 A.D. The Roman emperor Titus sacked Jerusalem. We're told that he did not want to destroy the temple, probably because he wanted to get all the gold off the walls. But he had decided not to destroy the temple. Whether it was a, a, just a violation of his order or whether it was an accident, no one knows for sure. You'll hear historians say both. Some will say they accidentally burned it down and then they decided just to go ahead and pull all the rocks apart because the gold had seeped back into the cracks of the rocks and they wanted all the gold. Others say that his soldiers were just so angry at the Jewish people that they defied Titus and they just tore down that building one stone after the other. And these were massive stones. It would not have been an easy job to pull those stones off of each other. But it in fact happened. The prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. So they want to know more, these disciples. And so as they were sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, and they're going to ask, a series of questions here. Number one, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And I think there's a third question here, though some people just say there's just two, second question with two parts, doesn't really matter. What will be the sign of your coming? And third, what will be the end of the age? Now, if you compare the Olivet Discourse of Matthew with the Olivet Discourse of Luke, you'll find that Luke talks about when the temple is destroyed, Luke chapter 20. But um, Matthew does not, Luke 21. Matthew does not. So, so Matthew's rendering of what Jesus said, he skips when the temple will be destroyed. And he goes straight to what will be the sign of the end of the age. And then his last question that Matthew renders as Jesus answering the, in the account is what is the sign of your coming? So if you look just in, um, thump, thumb ahead a little bit and look at, at verse um, 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken. And look at verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So we get to 30 verses before he asks, asks, I mean, sorry, answers the question, what will be the sign of your coming? So the previous verses, what are they talking about? And I believe that Matthew is focusing on what are the signs of the end of the age? And then, what is the sign of Christ's coming? But Matthew omits about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. So if you want to read about that, you need to go over to Luke, and it's all laid out there. And so here's what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Now already we have a problem. That has not happened. Now, there have been many false prophets that have arisen, but there have not been many people who claim to be the Christ. Very, very few, if any, especially from when Jesus said this to 70 A.D. Just didn't really happen. But it would seem that when you get into the seventh, that, that seven-year um, tribulation period, that as we read Revelation, there will be people claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. The Antichrist will be claiming, in effect, to be the Christ. And so this is, this is all what it's about. It is, so that Antichrist, that person, and the false prophet who, who will be his assistant are claiming the very things that Jesus is saying here. He says in verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, we hear of wars all the time and rumors of wars. Um, he would say, we're not there yet. The next verse, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the, earth, the birth pangs. Are we seeing these things now? Walbert would say, yes, Jesus is describing the present time. Frutenbaum would say, yes, Jesus is describing the present time. But in fact, Frutenbaum goes so far as to say kingdom against kingdom is a Jewish idiom for world war. And he says, and that started the clock, if I understand him and not misrepresenting him. And so you go, oh, okay, if that started the clock, the first world war, then we are. And he says, and the generation who sees these things, um, they, they are going to be the ones who will be alive when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, well then, how long is a generation? And Frutenbaum says it could be up to 100 years. Well, the First World War started in, what was it, 1914 or something, or around about there, and now we're in 2022, so we've exceeded 100 years. So to me, 
that's a little bit, I think, I wonder if, I haven't, I need to just call Arnold up. He's in San Antonio and ask him, but I wonder if he's not changing his opinion here a little bit. Because we are, we've gone at or beyond the 100-year generation, if in fact a generation is that long. So I, I'm having problems with that view. And so then we, he says, but again, he says, these things are merely the birth banks. Now, there's no question in my mind that we are living right close to the end. Surely we are seeing all these things, but are we seeing exactly what he's talking about here? Or are we seeing things that are marching us toward this? I feel like that we're not yet at the time that he's talking about. Could be, I don't know, none of us know for sure, but I think he's, more and more I'm convinced that he's talking about the early days of the tribulation. Well, let's think about that. Sorry, this is sounding very, you know, lecture type and not so much sermon, you know, and things, but it needs to happen. There's a lot of details here. The first half of the tribulation is described as a time of peace for Israel because the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to form a covenant, a seven-year peace covenant with Israel. And so Israel is going to have a time of relative peace during that first three and a half years. But that doesn't mean it's peaceful all over the world during that first three and a half years. I don't know of anything that says it's going to be worldwide peace. It just says the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to make a covenant with Israel doesn't say anything about the rest of the world and what's going on. And so it could very well be that there will be nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and then it says, and also famines and earthquakes. Um, we've seen a lot of famines and earthquakes for the last 2,000 years, and, and I think it would be fair to say that they are increasing. But I think still it's not like we're going to see once the tribulation starts. It'll be more intensified than even now. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. To be precise, they will deliver up Jewish believers. Now, all Jews in general, because Revelation 12 tells us that when, the, when Satan realizes that the time is near, He's going to turn his attention to trying to kill every Jew on the planet. And when he's not successful at that, he will turn his attention to try to kill any Christians, believers in Jesus Christ that are on the planet. But that, so here he's saying this is a time of tribulation, that when they were going to deliver you up and they will want to kill you, and they will hate you, be hated by all the nations on account of my name. So that puts a unique focus on the believing Jews. We know Satan wants all of them killed, but in particular, the attention, the hostilities will be against the believing Jews and other believers. Why would the enemy be so determined to, for this mass genocide to wipe out all the Jews? is because of what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 23. And Satan takes it literally, that he will not return until Israel says, until the Jewish people say, Jesus is our Messiah. And when Israel recognizes Jesus as her Messiah, 
Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. Keep this distinct from the rapture. The rapture of the church, the removal of the church, can take place at any time. Peter believed it could happen in his generation. Paul believed it could happen in his generation. We see that consistently in Scripture. Paul taught the rapture so clearly to the Thessalonian church, for example, that apparently they started um, quitting their jobs and just sitting up on hilltops and waiting for Jesus to return. So he had to write 2 Thessalonians and say, if you're not willing to work, you're not willing, you shouldn't be allowed to eat. Get, take, keep your jobs. Yes, Jesus is coming again, but don't stop your, quit your job. And so, but Paul believed that that rapture of the church could take place at any moment. Now, let me just say one more thing before we dive back down in the text. One of the reasons, other than it's complicated, that I hear people say that they believe that the church will go through the tribulation, and they say, well, it's just complicated. I can't sort this all out, so I'm just going to say. But another reason they say that they believe that church will go through the tribulation is because it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair for the church to be exempted from it. Well, keep in mind, it's not about fairness, but it is about God's grace. And God um, has not promised no persecution for the church. In fact, he has said those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We just won't go through this persecution. But we are being persecuted now. And I think all the indications are the persecution is going to increase for the church. We should count on it. But that seven-year time of tribulation is a time of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And Paul was very clear with the, sec with the Corinthians when he says in 1 Thessalonians, with the Thessalonians, when he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we are not destined for wrath. I don't know how you could say it any clearer. And he's talking about these end time events. And he says, we, the church, are not destined for wrath. The church is the bride of Christ. The tribulation is God's wrath being poured out on the world. He is not going to pour out his wrath on his church. That's not to say we don't deserve to be disciplined. But there's a difference between the discipline of God and the wrath of God. We are subject to discipline, but we are not subject to the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God for you and I. He took that. That's what the cross is about. Christ took the wrath of God on our behalf. And if we don't accept that, what he has done for us, and if the tribulation um, were to start and you have not received Christ, then you would not be taken up to be with the Lord in the air. But you would remain on the earth and you would have to experience that wrath of God which is being poured out upon the earth. So that's what he's getting at now in verse 9, is this time of tribulation. Verse 21, then there will be a great tribulation. Tribulation, great tribulation. He's talking about the seven, same seven years, but in verse 21 now he's talking about the middle and to the end, where it's really going to ratchet up. 
And then he mentions the tribulation again in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So is there any confusion here? Jesus is talking about the tribulation, the great tribulation. So then he says, verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. This has always happened during times of intense persecution. It's been from the earliest church in the first century when the church was being persecuted, one of the, one of the most serious things they had to deal with were professing Christians who denied their faith, betrayed other Christians, and then came back to the faith. What should the church do with them? It was hard. There has never been a time when the church has been persecuted that there have not been Christians who have fallen away and betrayed those who are faithful. It has happened many, many times. And during the time of the Great Tribulation, that seven-year period, it'll be very common. There will be many people who the church is gone, but there'll be people who get saved during that time. They're not called the church. They're not called the bride of Christ. They're called saints. And they will be saved, and some of them, because of the intensity of the persecution, will fall away. Shouldn't surprise us. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That, too, will be a characteristic of that tribulation period. And because lawlessness is increased, that shouldn't surprise us, because the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. And so... Are we entering this? Are we approaching that time? I think we are. It shouldn't surprise us that prior to the man of lawlessness coming into power, that we would see increased lawlessness around the world. And we are today. Like we've never seen in our lifetimes, we're seeing increased lawlessness. And what comes when lawlessness increases? Love decreases. Lawlessness increases and most people's love will grow cold. Terrible time. And again, we are seeing this. I get it. But what he's talking about here, I believe, is going to be a thousand times worse than even what we're seeing now. It'll be, like he's going to say later, like the days of Noah, when there was only one righteous man on earth. Can you imagine the lawlessness during that time? And that's where he's going with this. He's going to say, as in those days, so it's going to be again. Immense lawlessness. We aren't there yet. And my belief is, we're not going to see it like it will be. Because the church will be taken out first. Now this is a troublesome verse, verse 13. The one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. So I want to just pause here because if there's any verse in this passage that gives folks trouble, it's this verse. What do you believe about salvation and perseverance? I hope that you see them as distinct issues and not one and the same. I would hope that you believe that your salvation does not depend on you persevering or not. That you are not going to lose your salvation if you don't persevere. And it is not proof of your salvation if you, if you persevere or don't persevere. 
Salvation is purely the grace of God in response to faith in Christ. I am not saved because I persevere. I might persevere because of His enabling grace. And so the perseverance can be an evidence, a fruit of my faith, but it is not assurance of my faith. My, my salvation is, is certain, not because of what I do, but because of Jesus and what He has done. It is not about me. My salvation is based totally in Christ. My faith is in Him. And so should I not persevere, that doesn't mean I need to question my salvation. Because my salvation is not dependent upon persevering. So let me just give you some thoughts here. First of all, if this is from another author, he says he wants to give several proofs that this does not refer to being born again, to being saved. First, salvation here is future, and it is. The one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. He doesn't say the one who endures is saved. Oh, so you don't, don't endure, you never were saved. That's not what he says. This is a future salvation. Second, the condition for this future salvation is perseverance in good works, not faith in Christ. But we know salvation from eternal condemnation is by faith alone, apart from works. Third, the only other use of the word saved in this whole chapter refers to physically surviving the tribulation in verse 22. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. And so it refers to physical salvation. Fourth, the word save refers to deliverance from problems in this life over 70% of the time. In other words, not a reference to eternal salvation, forgiveness of your sins. Over 70% of the time, that word save in the New Testament has nothing to do with eternal salvation. And fifth, everlasting life is everlasting. It can't be lost. Here's some other things for you to think on. There is nothing in Scripture that guarantees perseverance. Just a couple weeks ago now, a little over a week ago, um, I met with some of the students, four of the guys, during our discipleship group time at His Hill. And it's first week of Bible school, and we're getting to know each other. And, and I'm very well aware that, that most years, if not every year, but most years, there will be one or more students who came to Bible school um, believing they were saved, but once they're at Bible school and they realize, they just wake up and they go, I have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they get saved. And in fact, we had one of our second-year students just gave her testimony last week, and she said, I grew up in a Christian home, I went to 10 years of His Hill Camp, and it wasn't until I was in Bible school that I realized I have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I got saved. And so that happens, okay? So I've got these four students with me, and I go, if you, just tell me, if you were to die and Jesus were to say to you, why should I allow you into heaven, what would you say? And so they all just nailed it. 
Yay, good for you. You passed your first pop quiz. And so they just said, because of Jesus. My faith is in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. My only confidence is in Jesus. And I'm just going, good for you. And then I said, okay, tell me this. Are you, what happens if you turn away from Jesus? Are you still saved? Well, the German sitting to my right says, well, I'll just be honest with you. And I would say, if it would say I would say you lost your salvation. Okay. Guy sitting over here, he goes, well, I'll just be straight up with you as well. And he goes, I'm reformed. And I believe that if you turn away from Jesus, that means you never were saved to begin with. And so the third guy goes, I agree with the second guy. And the fourth guy says, well, I don't believe any, I don't, I don't agree with any of those guys. And so we had a very interesting conversation. And so I started with the two guys that agreed with each other. And I said, so you're telling me that if you were to turn away from Jesus, that would mean that you were never saved to begin with. That's correct. But I said, you've also just told me you're sure of your salvation. That's correct. And I go, do you not see the contradiction here? If you're telling me that you, if you turn away from Jesus, it means you are never saved, then you aren't sure of your salvation because you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, much less 10 years from now. And they'd never thought of that. So I said, you're not sure you're saved. Oh. And so here's the thing. Perseverance is not guaranteed in Scripture. Even Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, what did he say? I buffet my body, not buffet, I buffet my body, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. Whoa. In Galatians chapter 1, and I pointed this out to the students, and I said, Galatians chapter 1, right out of the gate, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. Deserting Christ. And Paul never questioned their salvation. In chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says, you have been severed from Christ. But he's talking about their fellowship with Christ. He's not talking about positionally. He never questions the Galatians' salvation. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will reign with him. So perseverance is a condition of our, our, our reward in heaven. If we deny him, he will deny us. But then it also says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so this must be speaking about perseverance, not about our salvation. Paul said about Demas, having loved this world, he has deserted me. But he never questioned demons, Demas's salvation. In Hebrews, there are five warning passages to Christians, and every one of them deal with perseverance. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And all five warning passages, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12, are warnings to Christians about drifting away from Christ. In James, we're told if anyone strays away from the truth and one turns him back, he has delivered a soul from death. 
Also in James, I was just thinking on it this morning, I thought it was worth reading. And just the whole, the whole point about um, um, temptation and perseverance. James starts out his letter talking about persevering and enduring. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Perseverance, endurance is not assumed. Paul is exhorting us, encouraging us toward it. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's not guaranteed. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. So the Christian who continues in, in, in giving in to temptation, and he falls into lust and into sin, it results in death. There's no promise there of perseverance. In more and more verses, uh, in, in 1 John 5.16, he says, If your brother is sinning, and it is a sin unto death, I do not say make requests for this. Your brother can sin in such a way that it would shorten his life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote at least four times to the Corinthians, people again he called saints by calling, that he said that they, were kept, they will be kept blameless until the day of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1 and see how absolutely positive Paul is about their salvation. No question in Paul's mind they're saved. But to these same people, he said, if you were to destroy the local church by turning them away from the spirit to the works of the flesh, God will destroy that man, speaking that his life would come to an end. Paul spoke about the man who was involved in, in sexual immorality with his stepmother. And he says, I've already delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He didn't say that that man is going to persevere to the end. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul lists five different ways that the Israelite community fell into sin and they died. And he says, these things have happened for our example. Take heed if you think that you stand lest you fall, meaning die. And then in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, when speaking about taking communion together, he says, you're doing this in an unworthy manner. And some of you are weak, and some of you are sick, and a number of you are asleep. They have died. All of these are examples that perseverance is not guaranteed in Scripture. Nor is it required for salvation. Perseverance is not required to be saved. Listen to some of these verses. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification is the gift of God. It is not a reward for persevering. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. To the one who does not work, and see, perseverance would be a work. 
I'm gonna, I am not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, not his perseverance, his faith is credited as righteousness. Galatians 2, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. I could keep on reading. But here's the promise. As many as received him. Then say as many as persevere. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. On and on I could go. The scripture is clear. When we place our faith in Christ, that act of believing in Jesus is reckoned unto us as righteousness. And at that moment, you receive eternal life. Paul will tell the Corinthians, it is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. He will write to the, the, the author of Hebrews will write and say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm neither the author nor the perfecter of my faith. My faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. Do I want to persevere? Absolutely. Do I pray that I will know God's strength and grace to persevere? every day. But I can't in my own strength. It is God's grace that saves me and it is God's grace that enables me to persevere. Falling away is a very real danger. It's not guaranteed that we will fall away, nor is it guaranteed that we won't fall away. What is guaranteed is God's grace. And we can come to the throne of grace and receive Grace to help in our time of need at any point. If perseverance is guaranteed, then why are there so many passages in the Bible that encourage us to persevere? One after the other, persevere. Laying aside the things that encumber us and, and pressing on for what lies ahead, Paul talks about. Perseverance is encouraged. It is not required for salvation. And it is not guaranteed that we will all persevere. So when Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. He's simply talking about salvation from the tribulation. There is not a word in this passage about heaven or hell. It's about the tribulation. 
And Jesus is saying, if you're one of those people who is not part of the church because the church has been taken out and you receive Christ during this time, he says, keep the faith. The time is going to be cut short. It's not forever. It's going to, sound, it's going to feel like forever, undoubtedly, but it's not forever. And there will be a great reward for those who don't turn away from Christ during that time. I can only imagine how great the reward would be because such a tremendous time of persecution. Many people are going to lose their lives as martyrs during that time because they refuse to recant of the name of Jesus. They refuse to turn away. And because of their testimony, they will lose, literally lose their heads. And the reward for those people, I can only imagine, is going to be tremendous because despite how difficult it was, they endured to the end. Is there a lesson there for you and I? Despite how difficult it is today, we can, by the grace of God, persevere. And I pray that we do. I'm going to just stop with that and we'll, we'll go further next week. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that um, you are our salvation. And we can endure and persevere only by your sustaining grace. Thank you for that, God. We are weak. We always will be. But you will always be strong and sufficient. This life is getting harder. It's costing us more to claim the name of Jesus. And you are sufficient for this. I pray, O oh Lord, that we each would walk humbly with you, that we would cry out to you for that grace to help in our time of need. And we would not presume upon your grace and just thinking that it's automatic that we will persevere, and that we would come to you for that help. Thank you that you've promised to sustain us. You have not promised to deliver us from all trials. You have promised us that there will be persecution for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. But I also thank you, God, for the hope of being with you soon, of being caught up in the air to meet you in the clouds as you come again for your bride. We look forward to that day. And until then, Lord Jesus, may we be found faithful. And as lawlessness increases, may our love for you and for one another not grow cold. In Jesus' name, amen.